HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network, as usual on Tuesdays from, meh, 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 around 12, somewhere in the 12 area. 12, 12, 10, 12, 12. Hey, look, it is my fault because, you know, obviously people show up to work on time. However, in my defense... The J and the M are skipping all of the stops that are related. I mean, that, Jack, no offense. That's one of the problems about being, about being out here in theoretically well-served Brooklyn. See, Manhattan is not theoretically well-served by public transportation. We are actually well-served by public transportation, at least south of 96. Right, Stas? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why she lives over in Hell's Kitchen. That's one place on earth Nastasia does not hate is uh, Hell's Kitchen. It's true. She claims – I don't know if you know this, Jack. She claims that uh, – the actual sun is nicer, like a mile and a half west, mm-hmm. on the west side of the island. Well, yeah, better coordinates, sure. What? It's a mile and a half away. It depends on how many tall buildings there are between you and everything else. They're crazy people, crazy you know, it's people. It's funny when they said there was that Manhattan henge where the sun was going to align with the buildings and it would set perfectly in between the grid. I was driving to Philly and all these people are in the middle of the street blocking okay. traffic with their phones. It's completely overcast. Are you about to sing The Age of Aquarius? No, it sounded like you were sitting. Yeah, the intro to the Age of Aquarius. Run the moon. Right? How does it go? It's like something like that. It's in like a seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars. Something will happen across the planet. But, but I think love, I think, I think love rules the earth, which goes to show it never happened. Never going to happen. I think that show made me uncomfortable. Why are they running around naked? What's that all about? It's not shocking. It's just why I don't want, you know. Not necessary. Hey, I do want to jump right to our first uh, our, our call here. We're with Lou from Beacon. Now, this is not a question. This is just nope. a call. That's right. It's just a, it's a guest. It's a guest. Yeah. Lou from, well, but it's pronounced Beacon, isn't it? Beacon, yes. But Beacon. And uh, yeah. hi, Dave. It's, it's actually Lou and Dean. Uh, we're, we're both here. No, and you are, a, you are a brother duo, correct? That's correct. So how's that working for you, working with your brothers? 
Uh, it's gotten better and better over the years. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine my two kids working together, and it, only if their job was to fight each other would be the yeah. only way. Well, they I could. stopped growing, and he didn't. So uh, we stopped fighting a long time ago. Oh, nice, nice. All right, so listen. Um, rather than me giving the uh, so they've developed this new uh, brewing device, but rather than me give the spiel for your product, why don't you just roughly tell people who aren't familiar with it kind of what you got going? Sure. So, uh, so Beacon, you know, we're, um, we've been focused on unlocking, you know, a higher quality, the highest quality made-to-order craft beverage. Um, we come from the coffee industry, and the technology was originally born from coffee when Dean invented it. But um, the process uses vacuums to pull the air out of the organic material. And when the vacuums are released, the liquid goes back in size called RAIN. It stands for reverse atmosphere confusion. And what we've realized is that um, it is an open technology that um, really optimizes the flavor extraction from coffees, teas, infused waters, cocktails. Um, it allows beverages to be created that have never been able to be created before. And so um, uh, the patents and the technology is um, very broad-reaching. We're focusing first in the, the restaurant arena um, in the interest of working with uh, chefs and mixologists and baristas to create great content for the platform. But ultimately, the idea is that this is an Internet technology that, um, that we'll bring into the home so one day all those recipes that exist out there um, can be replicated by any consumer. And now, uh, it's not spelled like beacon. That, that why don't you spell it for people so that they can uh, find it on the Internet? Sure. It's uh, B-K-O-N. The website is Beacon Brew, B-K-O-N-B-R-E-W. And um, we just spelled it a little bit differently, but um, it's, it's announced as in Beacon, like a beacon of light, signal, a, um, a, a, a pathfinding um, illuminator. Right. Now, so the... The, now, so the, the, the fund, one of the fundamental things, similar to like old school vacuum infusion, where you're doing like pulse cycles of, of vacuum to first infuse liquid in and then draw it back back out again. Presumably, the patent has to do with the combination of that with the heating element and the processor control of it. I'll let Dean explain, but there, there, we have a whole range of uh, intellectual property. But um, it's the the. The process is, is, is quite simple, although it's a little bit more complicated than just pulling a vacuum. Um, specifically, it has to do with just the phases of the, the vacuum, uh, the depth of the vacuum, the time that it's applied um, and or controlled, um, with, with the uh, intervals in between where it goes back to normal atmosphere. So that's really the key of the technology is the... Uh, by controlling the vacuum and the depth of each specific vacuum phase, it allows it to penetrate uh, a determined distance, essentially, into the cellular structure of the material. Um, so let's say if we have three, three that are in sequence with a, with a pause in between, it allows us to draw the gases out, the, the solvent goes in, um, then we go uh, with the next one, go a little bit further and keep going through the cellular structure. Drawing the flavors actually out through the, uh, the pores of the material, the material itself is acting as, as a filter, like uh, water purify is um, bedrock. Right, right. So, and presumably you, you have different uh, programs written for different kind of products, and there's like a lot, where you have like a, like a recipe system in it that there's more of user just types in what they want, and, it, and then you pump it out the other side. Yes, yes. It's, uh, it, 
the the recipes are predetermined, pre-designed by the content partners. Um, um, there's specific flights that we've designed that allow a, uh, a very turnkey application as far as finding the best recipes for a specific type of beverage. So we've done a lot of research to make it easier for people to use the tool the right way and to find the optimal setting. Right. Now, are you able to pull the vacuum levels that you need with uh, like a simple like a diaphragm or a wobble pump, or do you have to have like a larger pump in there, or what are you, what are you guys using? Uh, we're using a, a, a small uh, diaphragm pump that uh, was designed for uh, medical equipment. Right. Now, so presumably with a diaphragm pump, you're not taking to like as uh, deep a vacuum level as you would with, let's say, like a rotary vane pump in a, in a commercial uh, – in, in, in a packer. But also you can't suck those kind of volumes anyway – I mean those kind of uh, vacuum levels anyway because – a lot of what you're doing is at temperature, so you're going to get boil off a lot before that. So is a lot of the art of it figuring out how to get enough of a vacuum delta and still have the high temperature without a lot of boil off, or what? Absolutely. Absolutely. All that is based in the code of the recipe. Um, there is a, certainly a relationship of the water temperature to the depth of the vacuum, um, also uh, taking the, the material and the solvent into account as well. Right. So... Um, uh, we, we certainly don't want to go into a full-on boil uh, with by creating a, a very deep vacuum, as that will also reduce the temperature of the liquid if we're working with something hot. If we're working, working with an ambient beverage, uh, we can go uh, quite a bit further, but there certainly is that, uh, that relationship, uh, what's optimal. Well, one, of the, one of the things, Dave, that makes this really unique and very much a, um, an Internet of Things play um, from, a, uh, from a model standpoint is all of the uh, all of the code that goes into controlling the different parameters, um, the water temperatures, the whole times, the different vacuum pressures, different vacuum durations, and it differs um, between just two different coffees or the same coffee, two different roast profiles. And um, but the beautiful thing about it is because it's it, because it's, it's because it's code um, and based on uh, you know our first product line, who was built is built exclusively in the commercial space by um, by Franke. And because of the, the level of engineering that they has gone into this, um, what's so amazing about it is that when that beverage is recreated, it can be recreated. So going back to your question earlier about how there's other methods that have been around for a long time of using manual pumps and manual methods or, or, or uh, partial manual methods to pull vacuums on uh, materials and liquid, this is all about understanding how we control those parameters, how we put them into code, and um, ultimately how we allow them to be replicated um, um, based on all the factors that allow you to achieve a precise um, system beverage. In the same way that when you open up a bottle of stone beer, you don't need to be in San Diego to drink it to know exactly how good and how perfect it should taste. That's our goal, what we're trying to do on the made-to-order side. Right, and presumably also, like, if some knucklehead uh, hits a, uh, a recipe that's a water-based and they have an alcohol in there, like, you have to know when you're – like, it has to know from the pumping curve that, stop, I'm boiling before I thought I was going to, things like this, right? I mean, presumably that has to get built into the kind of – at least somewhere, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, keep in mind it's a semi-automatic piece of equipment, so there's obviously plenty of room for user error. Um, there's, obviously, there's certainly going to be visual cues. Uh, the more, Hello? more you, you get used to um, seeing 
and, and identifying very quickly whether things are right or wrong. Right. Um, it's not to say that we can't actually mix hot water with, with an ethanol base um, and make a, a beverage because we can. Um, and we've done we've shown that with hot toddies, which is quite interesting. So, um, you know, there, there's it's not just a single beverage in itself, but yeah. the system allows for a crossover. So, going from a tea to a spirit, and then a, and a tea and a spirit combined into the same recipe, it's quite quite intriguing. Yeah, for instance, we have a drink that um, that we make using um, buffalo trace because it's uh, a little bit sweeter, and we get this beautiful Madagascar vanilla bean and this um, both from, from Rishi tea and as well as this um, this, uh, this beautiful black tea from Rishi tea. We put it in the portafilter with the bourbon. Um, so that bourbon is, let's say, 75 degrees, and there's six ounces of it. And then we add eight ounces of 200-degree water. So now we're at somewhere between, let's say, 140 degrees. Math isn't my strong suit. Um, but, but we are able to extract within about 90 seconds Flavors from that bourbon and tea. Um, I'm sorry, the flavors from that tea and vanilla into the water and the bourbon, because we have increased the temperature. But we now have the um, the bourbon in there acting as a solvent as well. Um, so, but to your, to your point, it's the, the digital part is only one side. The other side is the art, and that is the art that occurs on the content partner side, whether it's a coffee roaster or a tea company or a chef or a mixologist that's creating a recipe and has the knowledge and expertise of how to source and curate and prepare the ingredients. And then the second part is um, understanding the parameters and having the right code, having the right recipe, so you, when you put the two together, the magic occurs. Right. Now, is it, oh, I never knew, is it, is it Frankie or Frankie? It's, um, it, it depends where you are in the world. In America, we call it Frankie, uh, Frankie and in Europe, it's Frankie. It's F-R-A-N-K-E. Um, one of the reasons we chose to work with them is, as you realize, this technology was going to be very broad-reaching and have applications in, um, in home applications and vending and, and bottling way down, the, you know, way down the road. We knew we needed to be... Um, we needed to be flawless in the food service space where the content would be created. And as an example, when we looked at other boutique companies that were bringing technologies to market, a lot of them were building these technologies in garages on their own, which really is very exciting and and um, and definitely has an appeal to it. But there's obviously a lot of costs and a lot of risks that go into it. We chose Franke because they're a multi-billion-dollar organization. And as an example, when McDonald's wanted to do McCafe and they said they needed thousands and thousands of locations activated in one year, and those machines can be down for more than four hours, and they need to be call centers and service um, networks set up to, to protect this, and the machines have to be built to a certain spec. Uh, it was Franke that won that and executed on it. So our equipment is being built on the same, uh, the same caliber on the same platform. I mean, the interesting thing about that particular company is they're freaking huge, right? But in terms of the U.S., their penetration from, like, I don't know, in the QSR world, but in, like, the fine restaurant world is really only in the coffee sector. Like, but they have a huge business outside of that in Europe and all over the world. I wonder why they never, like, they sell autoclaves. They sell, you know, all sorts of stuff. I wonder why they don't have the penetration in the other segments here. It's an interesting thing I've always wondered about with those guys. Yeah, I, I, uh, I can't speak to their business, um, but, but what I can say is that, uh, you know, they definitely have the infrastructure, and um, they've, been they've been an amazing partner and incredibly, um, um, I, I guess, uh, non-traditional in terms of um, stepping out of their, their big infra infrastructure organizational um, 
uh, norms to be very innovative and adaptive with us as as entrepreneurs. So um, it's, it's really sort of the best of both worlds in that you know we're um, Beacon gets to still be cent- be centrally involved from an innovation um, and ideation and marketing standpoint um, with them, but they bring um, you know. Decades and decades of experience and you know unbelievable, unbelievable infrastructure that we could never uh, um, practically, you know, uh, pragmatically raise the money or, or, or build. All right, so you don't have a unit yet that people can futz around with at home. Where can they go? Like, who, who's who's buying these things now? How much they cost? Sure. So, so this is a purely a commercial unit. Um, the uh, the the market price that these should be, that these should be um, finding being sold for is somewhere around the 14k mark. Ouch! Oh, um, ouch! Now, now, if you look at it from a commercial standpoint, you really only need to put you know, you know, 20 keys through it a day to to break even within a matter of months. Right. And we have customers who've gone from, as an example, on the tea side, who had no tea beverage business, and they were just dry tea sellers. Maybe they did maybe 10 hot teas a day because they weren't promoting it, to putting this in and now having 70 hot teas a day. Um, so it's going to be transformational. The other thing is, um, just to point out, is that because it's an open technology, it allows you to deliver that level of, of quality across any beverage, and so it allows you to do things that you can never even do before. As an example, our infused water capabilities are um, un- unmatched and really, you know, they can- cannot be achieved by anything else. Um, our ability to do made-to-order iced teas, we can brew loose-leaf tea and, and, and concentrate it over ice to make the freshest-tasting iced tea in 90 seconds. Um, to do that would take eight minutes, so you wouldn't even be in the game anywhere else in doing it. So from a business standpoint, it's purely it, – it's, it's a, it's a moneymaker. It's a commercial machine, and that's what we're focused on. We just started putting in market um, – uh, we got our NSF certification late last fall. Um, and there's numerous companies that have been purchasing them. There's dozens, um, well over 50 that, uh, somewhere between 50 and 100 that have already been purchased that are uh, going into market. Um, you can begin to see it at Whole Foods in Chicago. Um, they're doing great things with it. Um, Hugh Ashenson down Empire State South, we're going to be with him um, actually this Sunday. Uh, Panther Coffee in Miami, they're um, rolling out multiple locations. We're going to be with them actually on Wednesday. Um, there's uh, Brennan Danes outside of Philadelphia, really innovative. You guys you have to watch them. They have, uh, they've got some incredible investors and um, incredible model. Um, what they're doing in sort of the health fast food, health QSR model is, uh, is really disruptive. Um, they're building an entire, per- they're using it for their teas and their, their infused waters. Um, Gabriel uh, Cruther um, up in, uh, um, in Midtown is opening up a new restaurant. He has one. Um, it's, um, does, your, does your website have a list of places? Like, it's like uh, that. So, like, if someone is lives, I don't know if they live. I don't know where do they live. Stas, Cleveland. Sure. They live in Cleveland. Like, can they go on uh, on your website and find someone like you know close to them that has one or no? N- not yet. But what I can say is that there's. Um, that in addition to the boutiques, that it's very likely you're going to see some some significant um, uh, multi-unit players in the craft beverage space that um, are going to make this more accessible on a nationwide level. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's right now a lot of the not a lot of the buy-in as within any new product is in this innovative that innovator demographic, which is actually represents about. 
about 2% of your market. The next stage is the early adopters. And that we're really sort of still in that innovator, cusp early adopter phase of people who are using it. But the results have been, um, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing increases of sales at 165% um, within established beverage categories for people. Right. Now, one last question, but then we have to go to break. Are you worried at all? I guess not because you're working with uh, Frankie, but are you worried about being clovered? Where like some big person buys you and then crushes the technology into tiny pieces? No, and, and that's exactly why we partner with Frankie, and that we're um, you know we're building this thing to bring it around the world. And most importantly, we're building this to populate the beacon, the craft cloud. Which um, once that content is up there, it's going to allow us to answer your question from before. It's going to allow us to move very quickly into the home space because the content will exist. The home model is much simpler for us to build, um, and so we already are adding content partners like Rishi Tea and Counterculture Coffee, and it just it's like apps. And once those are there. When the home units come out, you're going to know exactly what you love, and you're going to pull those apps down. Um, and someone can really pull recipes that you've created, Dave, and they can have their own cocktail or water or coffee recipe, and they hit that button as long as they have the ingredients there in the game. I don't know if they want any recipes that we created, right, Stas? <laughs> anyway, gentlemen, thanks so much. Look it up. It's BKON.com, right, Beacon? Yes, you got it. Right. Check it. Check it out. Really interesting new technology. Thanks for coming on the show. We'll be right back with a little more cooking issues. I'm with Fairway Markets, White Leghorn, Red Wattle, Bourbon Red, Navajo Churro. Well, these aren't names you're likely to hear at a Fairway butcher counter or any other counter today, but before the rise of factory farming, you would have. And at Heritage Foods USA, you still do. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity, small family farms, and a fully traceable food supply. You see, we believe the best way to help a family farmer is to buy from them. And Heritage Foods is honored to represent a network of family farmers and artisanal producers whose work presents an immeasurable gift to our food system and to biodiversity. The meat we celebrate, whether it's Heritage Turkey, Japanese Steaks, Berkshire Pork, or Navajo Churro Lamb Chops is the righteous kind from healthy animals of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts. It's a simple fact. Animals raised according to this philosophy taste better. And as we like to say, you have to eat them to save them. Visit us at HeritageFoodsUSA.com for more information. You have to eat them to save them. Love that. You have to eat them to save them. Well, not that particular one because he's dead. You know what I mean? But, you know, in general, I get it. I get what you're saying. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Stas, how you doing? Good. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Anything good happening today after the show? Oh, uh, nerd sale. You going to say it? Say it. No, you say it. You got the the, uh, reverb on me, Jack? Oh, yeah. Here we go. Nerd sale! That happens at 2.30? Uh, yeah, I thought we said 2. Oh. Yeah, we'll be there at 2. Yeah, around 2, 2.30. You know, bring cash and a truck because I'm not touching it. I wore a light blue shirt today. 
I didn't wear my. I want to see this happen where you're uh, not you know, touchy. I, I wore. It's gonna be off. Like, I'm gonna take. You're saying yeah, I have to take the shirt off. Yeah. Or we're just gonna Moving, be. We're gonna sweating, be sipping yeah. old booze straight out of the bottle. Yeah, I have the waivers to sign. I have everything. Yeah, yeah. If you buy something, it's dangerous. Hey, it's on you. It's on you, baby. You know what I mean? Also, one more thing. I have a request. First of all, uh, uh, I missed this question. It's too late because I didn't know when the thing was. But Julian wrote in saying, I'm traveling to San Francisco for the WWDC, which is, I think, the Apple developer thing this year. And I'm lucky enough to have some free time. But I didn't realize it before the conference and it just started. So he missed his free time. So tweet to him, a tweet to me for him, any suggestions you have for his remaining time in the San Francisco Bay Area of places to go. Uh, I need to go back there soon. I forget why, but I have to go back to San Francisco soon, and then I can have my own fresh recommendations. But uh, I hope you're having a good time there, Julian. Why don't you tweet us and tell us where you went, whether you enjoyed it. Right, Saz? Yeah. Did you enjoy it? Did you have a good time? Uh, okay. Also, I have a request. This is a, goes a request out. Uh, to anyone who listens to this show who lives in a mountainous region, I'm interested in Turkish coffee that is produced at altitude. And so if you live in kind of like your – in your like 6,000, uh, that's like around 2,000 or 1,800 meters or somewhere in there, like the boiling point of water should just about be at optimum coffee extraction temperature. And I want to know whether your Turkish coffee is is especially delicious. I don't know. You're not sure. Libre fan stars, you seen mm-hmm. that movie? Today is especially delicious. I want to know whether it's any different from uh, us, uh, you know, chumps down here at sea level producing uh, producing coffee. So tweet me in, let me know because I'm. I, you gotta I, tell the Turkish coffee man story. Which one? I mean the copper maker story. You didn't do it. Well, when I, when I when I run my own tests, I'll talk about the, no. the guy. Like I look, I have a nice look. Uh, for those of you that are actually Turks, you're going to get mad if I call the Turkish coffee maker an ebrik because you use the term ebrik to mean something else. But here in the United States, when we refer to a Turkish coffee maker, we call it an ebrik. And the Greeks, who don't care about what anyone calls anything in Turkey, they call it a bricky, right? He's like a bricky. Mine's from Greece. It's very nice. Nastasia bought it for me, and it was very cheap because, as we all know, the economy in Greece not so bueno. But uh, I feel, I'll tell a story later because I got to get some questions. But uh, I'm interest, very interested in Turkish coffee, and I am very interested in rubbing it in the face of snobs who think that Turkish coffee is not a good product or can't be a good product because it doesn't fit their particular idea of what good coffee should be. And uh, you know, anytime somebody uh, does something as a cultural ritual for hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm just going to go ahead and say there's probably something to it. Right, Stas? Probably something to it. Or people wouldn't keep freaking doing it. You know? Like, crappy percolators from the 50s? Like, no one sits around doing those anymore. You know why? I do. You use a percolator? You use a freaking percolator? One that goes gabloop, gabloop, gabloop into the plastic top? (laughs) You put it on your stove and it goes bloop, 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 bloop. no, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah, it Thanks died. Mr. Coffee. It died. Yeah, I mean, fine. You know what I mean? Or like mocha pot, like has its own kind of like advantages. You know what I mean? It has its own kind of its own kind of brew. But the fact of the matter is, is that these technologies have sustained themselves because they produce something that people freaking like. So why thumb your nose at the idea? Let's just figure out what all the parameters are in Turkish coffee. I'll let you know one thing about Turkish coffee is that every single American I've seen do it does it wrong. <laughs> 
They do it freaking wrong. For those of you that for those of you that have no idea, I don't really have the time to go into it, but here it is. So like Turkish coffee, like extremely finely ground, almost like a powder, right? So whether you mix it into the water when it's already hot or not depends on where where you make it, like whether you're doing it in Serbia and Turkey, Greece, whatever. But we're not even gonna get into that. So you put the powdered thing in and then it comes up and forms a froth, which is called a boil, right? And in America they always say you, you boil it three times, right? But if you look at Americans do it, they're such jokers. Right, that what we do is we let it boil up and then we don't do anything, we let it settle back down, and then we just boil that three times and pour it, and then you spoon the froth off the top. No, you t- this is look, you don't have to go to Turkey, right, to know this. This is why YouTube was invented, not really, but this is why I like the fact that YouTube was invented because I can go watch a video of like 12 different folks in Turkey making Turkish coffee. And instantly realize that as soon as it froths up, first of all, they cook it in sand, right? And that's why I haven't tested it yet because I haven't gotten the sand. I didn't want to buy a 50-pound sack of it at Home Depot because, as Nastasia likes to say, I'm not a real man. I'm a straw man. <laughs> anyway, uh, and I was like, I don't need 50. It's not that I can't lift the 50 pounds of sand, Stas. It's just what the hell am I going to do with the other 48 freaking pounds? Throw it in the trash? Anyways, I need a small amount of sand. So you put sand into a, like, into a pan, put it over coals, and it's very even. I sand. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so it boils up. It makes a froth. You then pour that froth out right now into the cup. Then you let it froth again. Then you pour that froth out again. Then maybe if you want, you do it a third time, and then you pour it out, and you leave a lot of the grounds in the cup. That's the way to do it. And I've never seen an American do it that way. Maybe that's why snobby Americans thumb their noses at it, because they just have no idea how to properly make it. Anyway, I'm going to go through the investigation. Why? Because I enjoy it. Now, if I can get to a question before they unplug my mic and kick me out of here. Um, Tom wrote in. Tell me if I answer this question or or, or not. For instance, like Jason wrote in about uh, gimlets, and I think I answered it already. Jason, if I didn't answer your gimlet question, your basal gimlet question, write it back. Write me again. Say, hey, jerk, you didn't answer it. You know what I mean? Uh, And uh, and I will. Uh, So uh, Tom wrote in, uh, and he says hello to uh, Nastasia, Jack, and the the rest of the crew, which is very nice. Uh, uh, Finally up to date to the podcast. I've got three questions, order by priority. Uh, I've been using my Sancerre circulator. been getting amazing results on fish and pork belly, but when I tried the 100-hour oxtail recipe of modernist cuisine. Did I do this? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I found off flavors and gas development starting around 50 hours of circulation. The same thing happened with the modernist cuisine 72-hour short ribs, 58 or 60 uh, degrees Celsius recipe, which I luckily got out before they actually went off. I had the oxtail and ribs vac packed at my local butcher with a chamber vac sealer. Now, I assume the reason has to do with bacteria not getting killed off, which may be due to slightly big water bath. But the short ribs uh, were uh, fixed in the center, and I measured the temperature throughout the bath with a thermometer, indicating constant and correct temperature every, everywhere. Any ideas what went wrong? All right. Yes, I have some ideas. I think what happened is, like, let's say you had a, a, a bunch of short ribs in a – you have to tell me, right? But let's say you had a bunch of short ribs in one package, right? So there's sauce and microbes and all sorts of, like, nastiness, right, inside of the bag, in the center of the bag, right? And I think what happens is it just took too long for the temperature, the kill temperatures, to make it to the inside of the bag, right? So if you were to take – uh, a block uh, this is my favorite example I don't know why but if you were to take a block of meat whole meat that had never been pierced with a knife like let's say 
don't cook, kill and cook whales, but let's say you had a chunk of whale flesh, single chunk of whale flesh, because I can't think of any other animal big enough to do this, right, that is the size of like a Chevy small block engine, right? And you were to put that into a bag, one piece, right? And then you were to circulate it, right? Then it doesn't matter really how long it takes for the center of that whale chunk to get up to cooking temperature because the inside of the meat is fundamentally sterile unless it had an infection or unless you stabbed it with a knife all the way through to the center. Now, as soon as you get in a situation where because the whale meat is extremely, uh, you know, it's very, it's very lean. It's a whale. You know what I mean? Well, they got a lot of blubber, but I think the meat itself, the muscles, I don't know how marbled it is. I've never seen it. I've never cooked whale meat, obviously, because I'm not for killing whales. But as soon as you take big pieces of lard or, or, or blubber and you start like penetrating the meat with and like putting stuff in the middle of it, or if you start hacking up that big piece of meat and then laminating it together with sauce, or if you take a bunch of different ribs and, sh- and short, you know, uh, short ribs or whatever you're using, oxtail, and you pack them all into one bag, well, now you have contamination in the middle of your bag. So if it takes six hours for the middle of the bag to get up to kill temperatures, you have plenty of time for bacteria to start growing and puffing the bag out. Once the bag puffs out, then you can have a reduced temperature everywhere in it and you can continue to grow and it can go off. So I think that's what happened because the temperatures that you're using are clearly high enough to kill everything. So even if you're cooking at home and uh, and you're not going to be doing portion control work, I always recommend, if you can, to bag each uh, large, each piece, like each oxtail or each rib in a, a separate bag if you can. And barring that, because also then if you lose a bag, you only lose one piece of meat. But And, you know, if, uh, if that jerk who said they were going to come over to dinner doesn't come over to dinner, you can always just chill that bag without contaminating the rest of your bag. How often does that happen? Does. Like they could, they're like, oh, I'm late. All the time, right? So then you could take that bag that you would plan to serve to your ungrateful uh, house guest and put it back in the, you know, chill it down and put it back in the fridge. So it's, it's convenient a lot of times, although wasteful of plastic, to have them individually bagged. But barring that, you should have all of your individual pieces of meat in a single layer, and I think that might solve your problem. And when I say single layer, such that the bag can get all the way around it, right? So if you have a bunch that are laminated together, even, you know, it's, it could cause problems. I think that's what's happening. Uh, second problem is uh, on centrifuges. Uh, via my university, I had the uh, fortune of uh, using a centrifuge to make some. Oh no, I answered the pea butter question. Pea butter question, I think I answered. Okay. I remember answering a pea butter question. Listen, if I didn't answer the rest of your questions, Tom, let me know and and, I, and I'll get to them. You can ask me more questions. One more question. One more question. One more question. Uh, okay, let's see. Let's see what this one is. Uh, hey, Dave, uh, Nastasha, Jack, and Annie Poppins. This is from Christian. Uh, love the show. Discovered it after my buddies at Arden Restaurant here in Milwaukee. Stas, you love Milwaukee. It's one of the things you like. Hates biscuits, loves Milwaukee. Uh, called in to get recipe for brandy old-fashioned slushies for their late-night ramen transformation. Uh, my wife and I just bought a house, congrats, uh, and discovered the previous owners had never installed a water line into the freezer. What the hell are these guys doing? What are they doing? How do you not have a water line in your... People... Uh, ice makers, good. Ice maker, good. Um, into the freezer. So we are iceless barring a midsummer snowstorm. Uh, even up there, I don't think you get them. You know what I'm saying? Do you know that Dax used to, when he was roasting coffee in the in the winter, he would run out and snow chill it? He over... He, yeah, yeah, he yeah, overrose yeah. it, and Dax wanted to go into business selling snow chilled... Dax's dark roast snow chilled coffee. And I was like, good luck with that, Dax. Good luck. Uh, you know, I would support him, but that's a hard that's a hard business model because you have to wait for snow or move to Sweden or something. 
Uh, okay, so we are ISIS barring a midsummer snowstorm. You can probably have a line installed, but you can, by the way. But before doing that, I wanted to get your thoughts on making ice at home. We basically have two uses. One, the rapid uh, cooling during cooking, uh, blanching, bringing cooked ice cream base or yogurt down, standard uh, beer cooler uh, filling. And two, ice for cocktails. Uh, considering... Uh, getting a, a greater than $300 standalone uh, ice maker for rapid cooling and making cubes uh, using the cooler in freezer technique described uh, you know, on Dave Stolte's website for bar ice. How would you set up a good home ice program from scratch? Any recommendations for inexpensive ice makers that could work for both the cooking and bar applications? Thanks, Christian. All right, look. Uh, this – oh, that used to be my telephone. Uh, they, okay, he, let me give you some good and bad news. The – the good news is well, – there's no good news. Like I would get the expensive uh, ice maker. Well, OK. Look. What do I have? I got, you know, I got, a, I got flack back because I, I pronounced it incorrectly. I I'm going to say it the way I say it and then someone can write in again and tell me how to actually pronounce it. Manitowoc? 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 That's the company, the ice maker company that I have at home. Um, commercial ice maker, I would get an undercounter commercial ice maker, and I would try to find some knucklehead who's uh, getting rid of it. Now, the problem is they use a lot of uh, energy, right? They use a lot of energy because they're constantly making ice, right? Definitely the, what you really should do is just drill a hole in your freezer and put a water line in and then buy a and, – and, and most likely your freezer has a space in the back for you to put the water line in and most likely you can just put in a um, – you can put in a, a, an ice maker because I, I've done that before. You know, get a filter and an ice maker and do it. Uh, you know, run like a quarter-inch line of copper to it and that's just going to make ice because really you want kind of crappy ice for your normal chilling. You don't want the big blocks and then you can just do like a freezer things. But – if you're going to have – what you didn't mention is that you're going to put uh, seltzer water on tap. Now, assuming that you like seltzer water and who doesn't, right? Like I use a cold chiller and I have that in the bottom of a commercial ice machine. So I always have decent ice on hand all the time because it makes it. And I use a, a very nice uh, Manitowoc and the reason I like it is because you can – it makes a nice kind of large cube. Uh, it's weird octagonal shape. It looks like those little jello cup shapes, but um, you can shut it off because they're very loud. So if, if someone in the house is like, oh, it's so loud, uh, you can shut it off for like two hours and it'll come back on and continue to make ice. But that thing, I use it to chill actually when I make my big cooler of ice. Uh, I use hot water from the tap and then throw those ice cubes into it to get the temperature down without including a lot of gas by pouring back and forth, then put the cooler in the freezer and, and go from there. So the best from a budget standpoint is to aftermarket install your own uh, ice maker into your freezer because they make ice on a cycle but don't require a lot of water and energy, and they actually store the ice without melting, whereas a commercial ice maker is constantly making ice and letting it melt down. The quality of the ice in the home – in the inside of the freezer ones is never quite as high so you're always going to want to make some ice uh, in, in a cooler but it's a lot less energy intensive and a lot cheaper so that's my recommendations uh, back next week was cooking issues thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.